I am a perpetual traveler through the Bible. Please join me for the next part of my journey through the Scriptures. Stay as long as you like and let us together discover a bit more about the Bible. When we look at these seven letters in the book of Revelation, it is always helpful to remember two important aspects about them. Firstly, they are a picture of seven kinds of churches that you will find in any age and any period of history. Every church in the world today, including the church where you currently worship, will fall into one or more of these categories of churches. The second aspect is the prophetic nature of these letters. They are a preview of the entire age of the church, falling into seven periods from the first coming of the Lord Jesus to his second appearing. While I was preparing for this podcast, I came across a wonderful definition of the word compromise. It comes from the pen of Merritt Malloy in his book, Things I Meant to Say to You When We Were Old. He defines compromise as simply changing the question to fit the answer. Think about that for a moment. This is how most believers want it today, a life of compromise. They want to go to church when they feel like it. They certainly want to go to heaven, but they still want to live in sin. They want to lie when necessary, cheat if they have to, steal if it suits them, and hate and take revenge when someone crosses them. This danger is the subtle deception, a compromising with the world. This happens when we begin to embrace the values of the world more than we embrace God's values. These were the kinds of false teachings and compromise with the world that were found in the church at Pergamum. The message from Jesus to the church at Pergamum and to us is not to compromise. How do we do that? How do we live in a world like we live in today and somehow not compromise our faith? The first letter of Revelation was written to Ephesus, the church that had left its first love. The second letter was written to Smyrna, the persecuted church. This letter was written to a compromising church. This church had begun to be linked inseparably to the world. This church had decided that it could maintain some kind of Christian credibility and also associate itself with the sins of the past. Pergamum is a picture of any church that courts the world, any church that marries paganism in any form. The church at Pergamum is a picture of any believer, any Christian who weds with the world. The letter to the church at Pergamum is found in Revelation 2 verses 12 to 16. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The first thing you notice about this church is that it is in sharp contrast to the church at Smyrna. Where Smyrna was enduring persecution and pressure, this church was faced with enticement and corruption. 
Satan is very limited in the way he attacks believers. He has only two methods of attack. Why only two methods? Because both work and nothing else is required in his arsenal. If Satan cannot make you buckle under pressure and persecution, he will begin to entice you and lure you into something weakening and compromising. So, it is either intimidation or enticement. It is either the violence of a roaring lion or the corruption of an angel of light. Pergamum is the church that was being undermined by corrupt practices and corrupt teaching. Firstly, Jesus identifies himself to the church at Pergamum as the one having the sharp two-edged sword. As we have already seen, this is the symbol of the word of God coming from his lips. It is two-edged. In other words, it cuts two ways. It refers to the fact that the word can cut open the skull to get to the mind and it can pierce the heart to touch the emotions. The word of God can awaken us to reality. We see things the way that they really are and that will motivate us to action. It can also pierce the heart. We read about this in Acts 2 verses 37 after Peter had spoken to the crowds in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Now when they heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? This is the power of the word. It touches both our reason and our conscience. Pergamum was the Roman capital of the province of Asia. It was located about 80 kilometers north of Smyrna. It was the center of pagan worship and there was a temple to Caesar there as well. Jesus calls it here where Satan's throne is. In other words, this was the place where Satan rules. Jesus also refers to it as the city where Satan dwells, that is, where he is established. At the time when this letter was written, there was a great altar of Zeus which was on this hillside overlooking the city. It was built in the form of a great chair or throne, 12 meters high. It could certainly look like Satan's throne to the Christians there because this was the center of pagan worship. It would seem to them to be the very center of evil. There is something fascinating that I discovered when I was researching this material. In the 1880s, a German archaeologist working in the city of Pergamum excavated and removed the remains of that throne from the hillside and took it to Europe. Today it can be still seen in the Pergamum Museum in the city of Berlin. So, for 140 years, Satan's throne has been in Berlin where Hitler's headquarters was once located. Both Hitler and Stalin, who controlled the East Berlin after World War II, used the design of the Zeus altar in some of their buildings during the Nazi and Communist rule. Stalin's mausoleum in Moscow is based on the Zeus altar, and Hitler's Zeppelin Tribune was as well. After Jesus introduces himself to the church, he then assesses the strengths of the church. Verse 13 says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Firstly, he says, you hold fast my name. The church at Pergamum had refused to budge on their view of Jesus. They held to the truth about Jesus. They saw him as the God-man combined in one person, two natures, both God and man. This is orthodox doctrine. 
This was the teaching of the church from its very beginning and clearly shown in the scripture. Against all the corrupting influences around them, these people had held to that truth. It is a fact that virtually every heresy and cult today begins with a denial of the deity of Jesus. But we should not also deny the humanity of Jesus. He was God as though he had never been man, and man as though he was never God. Both are true, and the church at Pergamum had held fast to that teaching. Secondly, they did this at the risk of their own lives. Jesus says, You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Antipas means against all. There is not much we know about this man apart from some early Christian writings telling us that he was the bishop of the church in Pergamum. Apparently he was a personal disciple of the Apostle John and was martyred during the Christian persecutions under the Emperor Nero by being burned alive in a brazen bull-shaped altar. Jesus then says that there were two terrible errors that were undermining this church. He says in verse 14, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The first error here is called the teaching of Balaam. The story of this wicked prophet Balaam is found in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 25. He introduced idol worship to the tribes of Israel and corrupted and enticed them into sin. The counterpart we face in our day is the introduction of pornography and fornication among Christians and the acceptance of living together without marriage that is widely accepted in the churches today. This is the error of Balaam. The church of Pergamum were also being seduced by the error of the Nicolaitans. These heretics were mentioned in the letter of the Ephesians. Though it is difficult to know exactly what these people were, the name means conquerors of the people. Church history tells us the Nicolaitans were a group that linked Christian faith with loose sexual practices. Clement of Alexander, an early Christian theologian, said about the Nicolaitans, they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. Apparently, they believed you could be Christian, but your sex life could still be worldly. It seems that they also taught that through their sexual activity and their superior knowledge, they would become gods. They also taught that they were to take the place of the priesthood in Judaism, and that error was carried to the early Christian church and is still found today in the heresy of replacement theology. Probably both of these false teachings worked together. One appealed to the physical lust and the other to the ambition for power exercised in the religious way. It is seen yet today in the supremacy of priests and pastors who are lifted up above the common man. They are men who claim to have more intimate relationships with God and thus are regarded as better than the rest of the people. We see this in many churches today, not only the Roman Catholic Church, but in Pentecostal and Word of Faith churches as well. How does the church deal with the errors of Balaam and the Nicolaitans? With the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus said, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The word of God exposes both the error of immorality and the error of priestly superiority. 
That is one reason why the teaching and expounding of Scripture is resisted in so many churches. Many so-called Christians are hostile to the Word of God because, correctly used and preached, it exposes their wicked lives and practices. Prophetically, this is the period from the ascension of Constantine in 320 AD to the rise of the papacy in the 6th century. During that period of time, the great councils of the church were held. The Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon and others determined the true doctrine of the person of Christ, who he was and how he combined in himself the two natures. But it was also the time of the blending of the church and the world under Constantine. By the way, Pergamon means marriage in Greek. It comes from the same root word from which we get the words monogamy and bigamy. The first Christian Emperor Constantine was not really a true Christian. He adopted many pagan practices and brought them into the church where they were accepted. Christianity was popular in those days and many pagan practices were incorporated into it. This began when the church was viewed as a worldly kingdom like any other kingdom. When we look back at what happened in the history of the church, we can hopefully see how the church became worldly and what happened to it. For example, in the period between 300 and 600 AD, under the Roman Empire, led by Constantine, the church married the world. Heathen priests became Christian priests. Heathen temples became Christian churches. All children were required to be christened. Supposedly children were turned into Christians by putting a little water on their heads. Heathen days of feasting and drunkenness were made into Christian days, like Christmas and all other religious days, and Christianity got lost in all of this. Christianity became merely a mass state religion. This is perhaps the most dominant period in the church history when the Pergamum mentality was evident. Jesus' appeal to the individual in the church is found in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is addressed to those who will take heed to the warnings of this letter, and watch in the areas of sexual immorality and of spiritual superiority. If we stand fast against immorality and the love of religious power, we will be given the hidden manna. Notice both the manner and the new name are secret things. It is a picture of close intimacy. Manner, of course, was the food that Moses fed the Israelites in the wilderness. Let us read what Jesus said in John 6 verses 35 to 41. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. Jesus is that hidden manna. He is the food for the inner spirit, 
that no one else knows about. In John 4 verses 32, Jesus says he was feeding upon the inner strength that God the Father was giving him. This is what is given to those who will resist the lure of immorality and spiritual privilege. Then there is the white stone with a secret name upon it. White stones were used amongst the Romans as a mark of special favor. A secret name, of course, is a sign of intimacy. My wife and I have special unique pet names for each other. They are intimate and reserved exclusively for each other. No one else knows them. A secret name is always a special mark of intimacy. If we know the Lord Jesus and our heart is kept from the corrupting influences of the world around, we will enjoy an intimacy with Him in which the new nature He has given us, which is signified by the new name mentioned in this letter. Our relationship with Him will become stronger and more developed, and we enter into a beautiful fellowship and intimacy with Him. This is David Wiles, your fellow traveler in Christ, and this has been the Journey Through the Scriptures podcast, episode 23.